thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you with me today because we're going to discuss the oral arguments that just took place on Wednesday in the case of Dobson versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the big abortion case that has the potential to result in the reversal of Roe versus Wade and its subsequent decision, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that was in 1992. This is an episode I think you're going to want to share with your friends because I believe today you're going to get some insights that will not be what you will find in the mainstream media for sure, and probably not in many other places as well. And it really ties into what I've covered for the last three, maybe four weeks regarding the doctrine of stare decisis. You'll recall that last week I said it will be the key issue that you'll read about in the days leading up to the argument. It'll be the key issue at the oral argument and it'll be the key issue in the days to come. And indeed, that is the case. But you may also remember that I have said that stare decisis uh, has become the basis for the creation and the protection and preservation of a living constitution, which disregards the words in the constitution and the meaning that they had at the time those words were written. In other words, the court has been making up the Constitution and uses stare decisis to protect the decisions that have rewritten and made up a new Constitution. And so it's not surprising that indeed it was the key issue. And I want to take some excerpts today from the oral argument, read them to you, and help you see that indeed the exchanges that were taking place demonstrate exactly what I've been saying. And you need to understand this if you want to know why your Constitution has been lost to you, which then helps us understand what we must do to take it back. Now, I'm going to give you some statistics you may not find many places about the words that were actually used in the case. Now, I didn't sit here and go through and count it up. There's a transcript of the oral argument, and I'll put it on our website and uh, probably reference it in our Five Minutes for Family newsletter that comes out on Fridays so that you can actually see it yourself. And I've put several annotations and marks on it that you you may want to read. But the computer that prints out the transcript also references a collection of all the words that are used. So so here's what's fascinating. As you might imagine, the apart from the words court and your honor, and uh, the names of the legal counsel, in terms of the words making up part of the argument, it may not surprise you that out of the 113 pages that make up the transcript of the oral argument, that 58 pages make reference to Casey, the 1992 decision that affirmed the essential or central premise of Roe. We'll talk more about that in a moment. 
51 pages make reference to row or some version of that word, rows, you know, as in R-O-E apostrophe S. Not surprisingly, 41 pages contain the word abortion. Now, after that, again, this is out of 113 pages, the word other next appears the most number of time, 38 pages. Just the word other. The next most frequent word that's found on 37 pages is the word people. And, of course, that wouldn't be very surprising either because we're talking about people who have abortions, people who want to believe this or believe that. But then the next most important word, appearing on 34 pages, was the word state. And, of course, that shouldn't be too surprising because uh, we're talking a lot about the state has an interest in this, the state has an interest in that, the state shouldn't be allowed to do this, the state should be allowed to do that. So it's not surprising that uh, generic words like other or people would show up very often or the word state. But after that, the word most appearing on the most number of pages, 30 pages, is the word stare for the phrase stare decisis. Apart from the references, not just on the number of pages, but the number of times the words are used, apart from the words Roe or Casey or Court or Your Honor or the names of the parties, the most frequently said word appearing 66 times is the word abortion. Again, that shouldn't be too surprising. But the next most commonly used word is with 51 references, stare. So indeed, as I said, the question of stare decisis consumed a considerable portion of the whole oral argument. Now, I want to lay the discussion of stare decisis that took place in the case in the context of just a few statements that were made on a few pages. But to appreciate What's taking place in this colloquy between Mr. Stewart, the attorney who argued on behalf of the state of Mississippi, and the judges, I need to give you some statements that I've referenced the past couple of weeks from Justice Clarence Thomas about the doctrine of stare decisis and how he has said that it really does not comport with the court's duty under Article Three of the U.S. Constitution, which sets forth the judicial power. This is what Clarence Thomas said, and you're going to see this popping up in this little exchange that I'm going to read to you and then explain. He said this, this is in 2019, in the case of United States versus Gamble. In my view, the court's typical formulation of the stare decisis standard does not comport with our judicial duty under Article III because, here's what he said, it elevates demonstrably erroneous decisions, meaning decisions outside the realm of permissible interpretation. In other words, he's saying words have certain meanings, and they carry forward those meanings, and to say that the word yellow means blue is just outside the permissible interpretations of the word yellow. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. So, meaning decisions outside the realm of possible interpretation over the text of the Constitution and other duly enacted federal law. So, in other words, he's saying there, 
Our job is to interpret the law according to the words that are used. And stare decisis elevates demonstrably wrong decisions that are outside the realm of possible interpretation to preserve them, which elevates those decisions over the actual words of the Constitution, which is what they're supposed to be interpreting. He goes on and describes it this way. Quote, the court currently views stare decisis as a, quote, principle of policy. And he's quoting the court there that balances several factors to decide whether the scales tip in favor of overruling precedent. As we've said before, courts are not supposed to make policies. They're to exercise judgment to say, here's a law and here's an action by somebody. Here's what the words say. How do those words and that law then apply to those actions? And then we decide the case. He's saying, but we... We consider it actually, according to our own language, a principle of policy. That should tell you right there, we're beyond the issue of judging. We're beyond the judicial power. Then he goes on, he says, among these factors are the workability of the standard. In other words, we say, okay, in row, they said, you cannot do certain things during the first trimester. You can do certain things during the second trimester as a state or as a woman, and the third trimester there's something else. So the question is, is that standard workable? Well, that standard proved unworkable by 1992, and they changed it in 1992 from the three-trimester approach of Roe to the viability standard. Until viability, the state uh, is, is very limited in what it can do, and then whatever it does do has to be viewed by the standard of not putting an undue burden on a woman, whatever that means. And the question in Dobbs is whether or not that standard is workable. If it's not workable, then maybe we should revise it. But again, somewhere lost in there is, well, what do the words of the Constitution actually say? And if the words of the Constitution themselves are no longer workable, then what do we do? Get a court to reinterpret the words? No, we amend the Constitution. Clarence Thomas continued on. We look at the antiquity of the precedent. Well, how old is it? If it's really old, uh, we probably should leave it even if it's wrong. Uh, No, isn't the objective to do justice between the parties that are currently before the court? The reliance interest at stake. Well, we've been wrong for so long as people have gotten so used to it and rechanged the order of their lives and the way they do things. Even though it's wrong, it just messed things up to actually start doing it right. And, of course, whether it was well-reasoned, which, of course, the whole point and struggle of this abortion decision is how do you well-reason between conception and birth to find any standard that is more reasoned than another? So you saw Justice Roberts asking, well, what about 15 weeks? If the issue is constitutional choice, isn't 15 weeks enough for her to make a choice? And I appreciated the answer of the DOPS attorney who said, well, no, because um, then somebody will say, well, what about 14 weeks? And then somebody will say, well, what about 13 weeks? And we'll just be up here all the time. So, no. And, and, and of course, she's pointing out the very problem with the whole standard. It's arbitrary. Anything between conception and live birth is arbitrary. It, at least the DOPS attorney got one thing correct, that viability is a point that would distinguish conception from later in a pregnancy. But the question that kept getting debated is, well, the child has an interest before viability. 
and after viability. The woman's interests before viability are the same as after viability. So what's so magical about viability? And the answer is uh, there really isn't anything other than at least it's a somewhat objective point in time during a pregnancy, but not completely objective because obviously medical science is changing where viability would arise, which means the Constitution is living and breathing, does it not? Absolutely it does. And so Thomas continues, the shared theme in all of these cases is the need for, quote, special reason over and above the belief a prior case was wrongly decided to overrule a precedent, end quote. In that statement, special reasons over and above the case was wrongly decided, he cites to Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And see, that's again saying the precedent is more important than the Constitution. That elevates what the court does over the Constitution. What is now supreme, the Constitution or the court? Well, clearly, it's the court, right? But then he gives us the real insight into why stare decisis is so important, why it took up so much of the discussion in the Dobbs case. And he says this, quote, stare decisis doctrine gives the veneer of respectability to our continued application of demonstrably incorrect precedents. In other words, we want to maintain the aura of respectability that we're not making mistakes. God forbid we should admit that we made a mistake, and we should do that very rarely. Otherwise, people won't trust us. Or they may think we're just being political, or may they think we're just giving in to political pressures. Or the composition of the court changes, so the Constitution changes. Well, of course it changes. If it's a living Constitution, all of those things are true. Let's just admit it. But that's what the court's doing, see. It's using stare decisis as a grounds to protect demonstrably erroneous precedent to maintain their sense of respectability in the eyes of the public. Because you see, the court has no force like the executive branch, to compel anybody to do anything, and nor does it have any will to make a law that applies to everybody. It is the least dangerous branch of the federal government. So it has to depend upon people thinking it's doing its job according to the text of the Constitution. But see, when it departs from the text of the Constitution, and does so over a number of years, any case that reverses a case puts into question all the other cases that were made up too. And then that puts their credibility on the line. You see what he's saying here? If we started getting it wrong in the 1960s, which they did with this doctrine of substantive due process, I talk about that in my book, Recovering the Constitution. They started getting it wrong by making up something called substantive due process and then infusing into that concept that's made up whatever liberties or rights it thought people ought to have. That the legislature maybe uh, didn't give them specifically or maybe limited. And, and, and so they started making it up. And then they used it to make up something else. They used it a few years later to make up a, a, a right to abortion. 
and then they used it to make up a right to get a same-sex marriage license or a license for a marriage between two people of the same sex. And see, so once you, you challenge something that goes back to 1973 that was made up, all the other cases since 1973 where you were making it up, all of a sudden, they're put into question too. And that ruins the respectability, the veneer of respectability of the court. And that's what was at stake. And that's what is at stake in the Dobbs case. So now let's get to the oral argument. Attorney Stewart, on behalf of the state of Mississippi, on page 11 of the transcript, if you want to take a look at it, acknowledges that, quote, more than half our brief is devoted to stare decisis. In other words, over half of what he had to say to the court had nothing to do with what the Constitution actually says, what the original meaning of the words was, but the question of stare decisis. See, that's, that's conceding. This is, this is bigger now than actually the Constitution and the meaning of the words of the Constitution. And he goes on to make this statement on page 25. Clear rules that have engendered strong reliance interest and that have not produced negative consequences or all the many other negative stare decisis considerations we pointed out in our brief. Now, what is he saying here? Let me interpret that for you. He's saying, look, you may have gotten it wrong. It may really have nothing to do with the text of the Constitution or the history of the Constitution or the common law understanding of the words in the Constitution, but people have relied on it. So, see, that's that's in essence saying we, we've created something that's not in the Constitution. We've breathed life into it, but we've lived that way so long, we, we just really have to have polluted water and smoky air or, or we feel miserable. We've gotten so used to it being wrong. But as long as it's not produced too many negative consequences. Well, see, when you start looking at the consequences, you're looking at policy questions. That has nothing to do with what is the meaning of a word and how does it apply to the particular case, but how did it work itself out? Did it work? I mean, that's actually pragmatism, isn't it? Pragmatism. Now, here's where it really begins to get interesting on page 33. Justice Kagan says exactly what Clarence Thomas said. She says, well, usually there has to be a justification, a strong justification in a case like this beyond the fact that you think the case is wrong. In other words, you've got to come up with something other than, well, actually, it's just wrong. Uh, the word yellow doesn't mean blue. The word person doesn't mean beings whose life comes from God or originates outside of themselves, uh, is not imputed to you as a result of law. So see, that's exactly what Clarence Thomas is saying. We're now exalting precedent above the actual words of the Constitution, and that doesn't comport with our judicial duty to interpret the given law according to the given meaning of the words in the law. Then Justice Roberts kicks in. Notice what he says. On stare decisis, I think the first issue you look at is whether or not the decision at issue was wrongly decided. Now, that's a great statement. Yeah, the first thing we need to do is we need to say, was it wrongly decided? But he goes on from there as if there's something more than saying, oops, we got it wrong. Let's get it right now. Because if we don't get it right now, we're denying justice to the parties that are actually in front of us. And he says this, I've actually never quite understood how you evaluate that. Now, I don't know if you plan with the counsel and playing dumb, you know, playing rope-a-dope or, or rope-a-dope, I guess, if you're a judge. 
but that he wouldn't understand how you would decide if it's actually wrong is a, is a terrible statement for him to make. What's he doing as a judge if he can't decide how to determine whether something, an interpretation of the words in the Constitution, was wrong? But he goes on. Is it wrongly decided based on, now notice what he says here, legal principles and doctrine when it was decided? We would say, yes, absolutely, that's it. There are legal doctrines. There's the common law. It interpreted for us various words, and we knew what they meant, and we used those words, and we put them into the Constitution. So if how we've construed the Constitution isn't consistent with the words and, and their context and their history, well, we got it wrong. But he says this, or in retrospect, let me read that sentence again. I've actually never quite understood how you evaluate that, whether a prior decision is wrong. Is it wrongly decided based on legal principles and doctrine when it was decided or, or, or in retrospect? In other words, it's a living constitution and time will tell whether or not that should continue to live or die. But if the Constitution is, as I've quoted before from the last paragraph of Casey, a covenant running from the first generation to the present generation, the only way that it can have a coherent successive meaning, which is what they said in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the words that were used then have to mean the same thing that they mean now, or be given the same interpretation, I should say. To change that interpretation is to create a living constitution. And that's exactly what I said the other week. Star decisis is used to create a living constitution and then protect it from being challenged as wrong. Now, notice what Mr. Stewart, the attorney from Mississippi, says directly in response to the Chief Justice statement. Well, I, I'd say, I, I'd say, Mr. Justice, that you, you, look, you can look both. Was it wrong at the time? Has it, has it been unmasked as wrong by, by, by new understandings, new knowledge, any developments? So see, Stewart is playing right into the problem rather than saying, no, Your Honor, it is a question of what are the meaning of the words. And, you know, and you want to say, and you know that. You've written on that before. You know that the court has said that the Constitution was framed in the language of the common law and it's to be interpreted in light of its principles and so yes that's what you look at to decide whether it's wrong not whether or not it's worked out okay not whether or not it was a workable standard I mean you, you, you could say that Roe got it right that you know only after 27 weeks can the state do anything about abortion that's a very clear workable standard right people wouldn't be confused about it nobody was confused about those standards it's when the court decided to create viability, which moves along based upon advances in science and undue burdens, which is a weasel word for whatever you think is more burdensome than somebody else thinks is more burdensome. Our side just plays right into this, this false notion of stare decisis when we have a justice sitting there in Clarence Thomas and, and, and in Gorsuch and I believe in Alito who all know this is food made up stuff. But we don't give them anything to work with. We play to the other side. And you know, when you play to the other side's rules, the odds are you're going to lose. And then Sotomayor says this. When he makes this statement, and by he, I'm referring to Mr. Stewart, 
that, well, these other cases that use substantive due process, this made-up doctrine of substantive due process, and when the court infused it with words that just aren't in the Constitution, uh, he says, you don't have to reverse those cases because they created clear, workable rules. And he gives the example, like, same-sex couples can get married, and that's a clear, workable rule. Yeah, it's clear and it's workable, but does it have anything to do with the text of the Constitution? I mean, we, we know how to work it, right? We have a statute that says people can get licenses, and here's who can get them. That's workable. But does that have anything to do with the Constitution? So Sotomayor nails him right there. She says this, I'm not sure how your answer makes any sense, this clear, workable rules stuff. All those other cases, and she lists some, Griswold, that was the case that preceded Roe versus Wade that said that the state could not have laws regulating contraceptives involving married couples. Now, maybe that was a stupid law, but it has nothing to do with the Constitution. But see, the court parlayed this made-up substantive due process right to have privacy and intimate relationships into abortion three years later, literally. Then he mentions, she mentions Lawrence, Lawrence v. Texas. was a case in which the court said, you can't have criminal sodomy statutes. And then she mentions Obergefell, clearly a substantive due process made-up case. There's nothing in the word liberty, as understood at common law, the ability to move around, that says I have a right to force a county clerk to issue a license to Bob and Fred for a marriage. Nothing. She says, Sotomayor says, they all rely on substantive due process. You're saying there's no substantive due process in the Constitution, so they're just as wrong according to your theory. In other words, it's exactly what I said at the top of the broadcast. If we started making things up in the 60s, which we did with Griswold, and we've continued to make other things up since then, if we pull one of those cases out in the middle of there, like Roe or Casey, why aren't all those other cases now subject to being reconsidered and reversed? She gets the point, but see, he wants to say, no, as long as, as, long as there's a clear settled rule, uh, they can continue to be wrong. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and she says this. This is on page 27. I'm not trying to argue we should overturn those cases. I just think you're dissimulating when you say that any ruling here wouldn't have an effect on those. You see, she gets the point. When you call into question the authority of the court to make up a living constitution and the court says, yes, we shouldn't have made up the Constitution and breathed life into it in case X, then cases Y and Z and W and all those that were doing the same thing are now all automatically in question. And to simply say, well, their rules were clear, she says, you're dissimulating. You're trying to deceive this court. We know exactly what you're doing. And you know what? When the other side knows exactly what you're doing, why don't you just have the integrity to say, Your Honor, all of those decisions may in fact have been wrong. But there is a good answer to her concern. And it was given by Justice Clarence Thomas, again, 
in a case involving the Second Amendment. And, and let me read you what he said, and I'll close with this today. There's some other things we need to come back and look at, and, and we will. But here's what Clarence Thomas said. I acknowledge the volume of precedents that have been built upon the substantive due process framework. Now, if you don't understand the substantive due process framework, I'm sorry I don't have to, time to get into it today, but it's the very first chapter of my book, Recovering the Constitution, and explains how it works and why it works and all of that. And, and, and I do it in, in as layman a terms as I can, like I try to do on the podcast. And he says, And I further acknowledge the importance of stare decisis to the stability of our nation's legal system, but stare decisis is only an adjunct of our duty as judges to decide by our best light what the Constitution means. It's, it's something we use when, we, when somebody questions our decision to go back and say, well, we actually do think we got it right. And here are the reasons we think we got it right. And here's the history and the traditions and the meaning and the common law and all those things. We got it right. And unless you convince us that there's some aspect of common law we forgot, see, that's my whole argument about the Ninth Amendment. You've forgotten the Ninth Amendment. You've forgotten the Ninth Amendment. He says, then that's an adjunct to our decisions, but, but it's, that's not our function. It's the function is to interpret the Constitution and get it right. So he goes on and he says, Star decisis is not an inexorable command. Like we don't just have to follow wrong decisions, and the court said that over and over. Moreover, and here's the critical point, as judges, we interpret the Constitution one case or controversy at a time. I've talked about the case or controversy question. In other words, when I overrule Roe or Casey, I'm not overruling all these other cases. They're not in front of me. They may never come back in front of me. For example, if every state decides they like gay marriage and every state issues licenses to same-sex couples, the Obergefell case will never come back in front of the court. Why should I worry about that today when I don't know that I'll ever see that case? Thomas goes on, the question presented in this case is not whether our entire 14th Amendment jurisprudence must be preserved or revised, but only whether and to what extent a particular clause in the Constitution protects the particular right at issue here. See, he's saying we decide cases or controversy. There may be future cases or controversies that may resurrect the rightness of the decisions in previous situations, but they may never come about. Our job is to do justice to the parties before us, and to do justice means that we get it right, and if we know we got it wrong, we reverse. It's as simple as that. With the inquiry appropriately narrowed, and see, that's exactly what we were trying to do with the Rule of Law Life Act. It'll, it is exactly what we will be trying to do with the Marital Contract Recording Act when it gets in front of the General Assembly in January, to appropriately narrow the question before the court he says, when, when that's the case, it presents an opportunity to re-examine and begin the process of restoring the meaning of the 14th Amendment agreed upon by those who ratified it. But see, here's the problem with our side. We are not willing to say the court has been getting it wrong for a long time and to pass laws that say, here, would you fix it in this case? Don't worry about the next case or controversy. It may never come back. Nobody may ever fix a different law. But when we do, then you need to fix it then, and you need to fix it then. And that's how you get back to the process of restoring the Constitution. And that's why I entitled my book, Recovering the Constitution.
because that's exactly what we need to do. And we will not get there as long as we are willing to mush mouth around the doctrine of stare decisis and its abuse to create a living constitution and its abuse to preserve a false constitution. I hope you'll join me next week as we look again at some of the key points made in the oral arguments in the Dobbs case. And I look forward to being with you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.